This is Peter. And this is Tom. And you're listening to History Teachers Talking Podcasts. All right, this is Peter Zablocki and Thomas Resko, and welcome back to our podcast. What do we got today, Tom? Today, we're going to be looking at one of those figures in history that there's a lot of myths about, but there's also uh, sometimes the truth is a lot weirder and more fascinating than the fiction, the myths, and that's a man by the name of Rasputin. Indeed. I think we need to start off, first of all, uh, since this is a child-friendly podcast, um, we kind of want to, I guess, give it a little warning that this might have, not might, it will, this podcast will have some mature topics, uh, especially of uh, the sexual nature, and there's really no way of avoiding it if you're talking about Rasputin. I I think that, you know, if you do discuss, and I feel like a lot of the things we're going to talk about today will pretty much debunk um, some of those. A lot of those myths, yeah. Myths about Rasputin. But uh, I think it's inevitable that we are going to talk about sex today. So, you know, for those of our um, parents that are listening physical, to their children. Physical relations. We can say physical relations. <laughs> yeah. For those parents that are listening uh, with their kids to this podcast, we just wanted to let you guys know that um, as much as we're going to try to do this in a tasteful manner, uh, it is impossible to avoid when talking about Rasputin. Um, also, this, uh, this particular episode was actually um, pitched to us by one of our listeners. So there you go. You know, we, we listen, we listen. And I feel like a lot of people have done Rasputin. So I, I think when, you know, and for those of you guys that already know this, because we feel like, I feel like we've said this many times, but Tom and I do not talk about this. The first time we're having this conversation about Rasputin is right now, as we're recording this. Um, we all do our own research and we kind of come together and this is the first time we talk about it. So you guys are here for that. But you know, I feel like Rasputin's been covered on probably a lot of podcasts, but never by us. So this is our, this is, our yeah, version. this is the this is our version of this um, of Rasputin, basically. Because he's one of these mythological figures, basically, right? He's shrouded in this mythology. Um, he's almost a larger than life figure, uh, particularly in Russian history. Absolutely. Um, he he was considered a what's going to write a sexual deviant, right? A mystic yeah. healer, political saboteur, right? A renegade monk. He was just mysterious, and he was uh, revealed and brought and hated all throughout Russia um, during yeah. his lifetime. He became like a scapegoat for a lot of dissenting groups during his time period, and um, yeah, he's been he's been uh, has a very controversial death, <laughs> and he's been dead for over hundred years. And yet he's and yet he's still talked about. Yes, absolutely. And, and the death part, I'm I was going to touch upon that, but uh, that's we're going to have to look at yeah, look at that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. So. Overall, Rasputin was born a, in a peasant, as a peasant, in a small village, yes. um, Pokrovskoye, I think it is. It's a small village that is in Siberia. So think of the vast size of Siberia. And as much as today, a lot of people consider Siberia to be very backwards and the people of Siberia to be, you know, kind of viewed as disattached from the rest of the civilization. Imagine what this was like, you know, in 1800s. I mean, when he's born in 1869, Siberia really does seem like the edge of the world like this is the end his daughter actually believed later on that when he was born supposedly the night he was born there's like a comet or something that fell from yeah, the sky yeah. and and it you know it foretold that some great person was born but obviously uh this is his daughter who eventually when she gave the history or the account of her father uh rasputin she got his birthday wrong by like years so we probably should not yeah. necessarily believe remember that. his name was, was not rasputin at birth nope it was so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to pronounce it because you have that uh bit more of that background than I do. 
Well, it was Grigori. That's his first yeah. name. Yeah, Grigori. Yeah, yeah. Yafimovic Novaka. Yes. Yeah, and um, he actually gets the name Rasputin, the surname Rasputin, which is Russian for uh, debauched one, um, really because of his reputations. He was totally illiterate. He always remained illiterate, even though when he had all this power later in life, mm-hmm. when he becomes buddy-buddy with the, with the, uh, the czar, czar. Uh, which we'll get to. Um, yeah, but he, he was very lewd. And um, his hygiene was not the best. And that's really how he got that nickname of Ras- Rasputin. Oh, they said that even when he was in like the czar's court later on. Oh, he was. Uh, he was pretty, greasy, yeah, we'll smelly, and just uh, yeah. all right. He used to have rotting, rotting food left in his beard for like months. Yep, yep, yep. So Gross. let's yeah, let's talk about let's talk about his youth. There's really not much known yeah. about his youth. Historians will tell you flat out that you know there's not enough reliable sources to really describe his youth. Uh, what we we do know, know he became um, yeah. We know he went a religious conversion at 18, right? Yes. He went to a monastery. But that's prior really, to that. That's, we don't know That's much. really what they know. They, much before that, they don't really know much about his childhood, about his um, parents and stuff. No, no. Nope. Other than he was a poor peasant, basically in Siberia. Yeah. And oh, the rumors also did start that around this time he kind of becomes very sleazy. He's known as like the things he would do, and how he would try to call on women and well, obviously girls and women. I mean, he's like you know a teenager. Today would probably be considered like sexual harassment. Um, yes, but you know, not probably. It would be. It would. It be. would be hundred percent. Actually, you're right. It would be considered sexual harassment. But at the time, you know, and unfortunately for the women of you know, Soviet, well, Soviet of Russian. Sorry, not Soviet yet. Not, um, yet, not yet. Of Russia, um, you know, this was the reality, and therefore he was very much viewed as this like sleazy kid in town. So what really kind of brings him to this conversion, supposedly. Is the fact that him and two other boys are accused of stealing horses? I've heard about that in my other. Uh, I didn't find that in the reading research, yeah. but I never did hearing about that um, in the past about Rasputin. Yeah, so, some, something to do with horses. Yeah. Yeah. So apparently, like he stole him and two other boys stole these horses, and the two boys are found guilty of this theft, and they are thrown out of Pokrovskoye. Like they basically banished them from this from the town. Um, however, Rasputin fought for himself, kind of defended himself and said, you know, the evidence against me is really not that great. And quite frankly, I don't think that I in any way, shape or form am responsible for this theft. So instead of banishing me, I am willing to basically go on this long pilgrimage to this, you know, holy monastery, which was like 300 miles away. He was going to walk there through Siberia. And basically the townsfolk decided like, well, that's not a bad idea because we kind of think that he's a troublemaker. So let's let him do this. Let him walk this pilgrimage. And that's basically when he kind of discovers this, you know, he kind of is inspired, right? To become this great. Well, yeah. Well, what's the well, word he, well for? this holy man. Well, basically what holy he does man, is he kind of, he does, he was introduced to the um, flagellant sect. Uh, sect. Yes. Um, and he kind of perverted their ways. He kind of changed their doctrine. And he he said that the way that you're closest to God is when you feel something he called holy passionless. Yep. And that the best way to reach that was through physical relations yep. um, after prolonged debauchery. That's basically what they said. So he never became a monk because of those beliefs, even though he went to that, that place. The Flagens was a place where you would go and eventually train to become a monk. Uh, and yep. he winds up actually marrying a woman at the age of 19 and has four children with him, but it didn't settle him down at all. And he abandons them pretty much. He leaves home, kind of again, talk about how the mother, how his daughter didn't really, you know, couldn't even name his birthday, really. 
he wanders to um, Greece. He goes to Greece, he goes to Jerusalem, and he's doing all this, living off peasants' donations. And this is when he starts to gain um, a reputation as being a self-proclaimed holy man. And people start to believe, not a lot of people, but he's getting sort of a following as far as people believe he has the ability to heal the sick and predict the future. And then he eventually brings him back in 1903 to St. Petersburg. Yep. Um, one other thing here, during this, this religious conversion, and this kind of comes up a lot later, there is a belief that, um, and this is kind of on his way to uh, St. Petersburg before he makes it there, that he does join this underground spiritual Christian sect known as the mm -hmm. Clists. Yes. Uh, and this is kind of what you were talking about. And yeah. Klist split from the Russian Orthodox Church and existed from like 1600 until late 20th century. And this is where it gets kind of like a little, a little, I guess is the understatement. Um, uh, nuts. This is where it gets, if you think this is nuts, it, because it, it probably is a little nuts. Um, so they had these meetings, this Christian Orthodox um, sect had these meetings that were very subject to like suspicion and, and even hostility by other people that denounced them. But the idea was that they would basically sing these strange songs um, and then afterwards they would really whip each other like to so they would make yeah. themselves bleed and whip one another. And that would be followed by them basically getting all naked and having these sexual orgies. And, you know, later on, it was disputed that was he was he not part of um, this sect? However, um, when he came back to his town uh, for a brief period of time before going to uh, St. Petersburg, he actually was still living in his father's household. And he started holding these secret prayer meetings there. Um, and the meetings themselves were always kind of subject to suspicion and hostility from you know the village and the village priests particularly, because first of all, um, there's a rumor going around town that he always had female followers that would like wash him before each meeting. And then the group would go down and like shut the doors and shut the windows and they would sing these strange songs. And then that ultimately what they were doing was having these sexual orgies. But again, it's kind of, it's kind of been disputed a exactly. lot. And they think a lot of this, a lot of the rumors about Rasputin, like that he had a affair with the czar, the czar's mm -hmm. wife. The and daughter, like czar, yeah, Serena yeah. and the daughters. Yeah. Yeah. That, um, they don't think that really happened. They think a lot of that, what happened was after the, um, February Revolution in Russia in 1917, that a lot of his enemies kind of kind of propagandized his, his life. They kind of made up these stories about him in order to... They discredit him. Yeah. Yeah. They, they discredit him, they damage his reputation, and just, you know, kind of rewrite the history of him. Again, we, we, he, had, he had enemies, both political and religious enemies, and they were out to get him one way or another. So they just, after his death, they make up a lot of these stories sort of grandstanding what's going yeah. on. So he lives his life uh, around the turn of the century, 1900s, as basically a pilgrim. And he, he moves for months, years at a time, just kind of wanders the country and visits a variety of different holy sites. And during that time, that's also when his reputation, at least in, um, in Russia, you know, uh, grows. I mean, his reputation he kind of precedes him that there's this pilgrim, this, this monk that is kind of, you know, moving around and going from you know area to area with his studies and teachings and as you mentioned before that's what basically brings him to st petersburg and st petersburg at the time is it's kind of very interesting because there's a lot of really wealthy people which is kind of why you eventually have the you know russian revolution a lot of peasants are really upset by this um but 
these wealthy people are having this there's like this movement, I guess you, I mean, you might say they're part of a movement of spiritualism um, it becomes extremely popular with the aristocracy. And when he arrives, he kind of feeds off of that idea that these people are into spiritualism and it is supernatural almost. Um, and because he's such an odd man and his, his reputation kind of preceded him already as like this, this weird monk, he starts to be invited to a lot of these, parties that are thrown aristocrat parties yeah the, yeah, the, the elites elite. the higher the higher up in the russian they, they're 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 into this mysticism that that yes. rasputin is part of that he he knows how to he knows how to talk he knows how to keep people engaged he knows he knows he knows what he's talking about or at least he gives the perception that he knows what he's talking about yeah and a lot of these aristocrats they're into this whole idea of remember this is the early the early 20th century, early 1900s. So they kind of they kind of believe in a lot of this, yeah, these mystic arts and the unexplained and ways to heal things and ways to get closer to God and spiritual and awakeness. And you know, Spirit really really thrives on that, and he really enjoys the way that you know the, being part of this. Remember, he's a peasant kid from Siberia, yeah. right? So he's getting all this attention from these upper elites, and he enjoys it. And he's going to do what he has to do to stay there, even though yeah, a lot sure. of people like him. A lot yeah. of people don't like him also because he does have this reputation. Well, his reputation is that he basically sleeps with every woman he could see. I mean, this guy, you know, is insane with regards to that. So he meets the Tsar on November 1st, 1905 um, at, at a party. Um, he's actually through these elites. Someone invites him to this party. And this gets very interesting because the only reason the Tsar really and the Tsarina really speak to him is the sheer fact that they kind of find out about his, like, odd or mystical healing powers and this becomes very important specifically to the czar and the Tsarina for one particular reason and that is that's because their son was um hemophilia was a hemophiliac he couldn't stop yeah. bleeding basically and they're desperate to do anything to save him because he's the only male so he's only he's the heir to the yeah. throne he's what alexa right was that his name yeah. Yeah, was and alexa. he he's the only male heir so it's very important that he is healthy but he's not. He was always very sick, and literally a paper cut, unfortunately, could kill this kid. Yeah, and another thing they said with the hemophilia was bad is it wasn't even just the external bleeding. A lot of it was the internal bleeding that was an yes. issue. Yes, yes. He, he could was, fall. And then and just yeah, they wouldn't even know how bad it was. And at the time, they would not give him heroin. So heroin was a thing, They were, but they refused to give it to him. Not heroin, what am I saying? Um, at the time, they refused to give him morphine which was becoming a thing, but they didn't want to give it to him because they didn't want him to be dependent on morphine. So this kid basically just suffered. But what was really insane, yeah, at this time, is that the only way they tried to heal him whenever he got hurt was by giving him aspirin, which, which is was, the worst thing you could do. Exactly. Yeah. And at, this, at the time, it was like this miracle drug, you know, like this thing's going to heal and help with his pain. But aspirin dilutes the blood. I mean, it's a it blood is, thinner. Yeah. Yeah. It's literally the, the it's worst. It's the last thing you want to give to someone whose exactly. blood won't clot. Exactly. And they kept on doing that. So needless to say, uh, Rasputin is asked, um, you know, to visit Alexei, right? And to act as his healer. Again, this is kind of something that, that's, think of this as parents, you, you know, you're willing to try anything. You're going to do anything you can to try to help your kid. And yeah. they hear that he has this sort of power. So they do take him in, right? Yeah. And really what and what happens is the he's in this session with Rasputin and the blood he the blood does 
clot. He does the, the yeah. bleeding does stop. But historians say, yeah, that's because Rasputin refused to let the boy take aspirin. Yeah. So he was like, no, you're not giving him the aspirin. I'm doing something to give it to him later. Not because he knew what aspirin was and aspirin was a blood thinner and like that. He just, you know, was doing his own thing, saying no, nothing else. But that was enough for the czar's wife um, because she basically saw this and that's it. She was. Oh, she, she was, was convinced. She was, she was convinced. convinced that it had to be, it had to be Rasputin. Yep. Yeah, Rasputin was praying and it totally did it. And meanwhile, we now know that it was probably, like you said, because yeah. he cut off Alexandria, that was Alexandria was her name, right? Alexandria? Yeah, the wife. Yeah. She was German-born, by the way, which is like a big deal. You know, that kind of, we could talk about that a little bit. But um, because they first, well, I guess we'll talk about it now. Um, she was German-born and they said that, First of all, the people did Russia didn't like her, but also the fact that she gave birth to the only heir who was so sickly, they kind of blamed her for it, which is also why through that, like she wanted to redeem, redeem herself in the eyes of the, the Russian people and not just to help her son, but also clear her a little bit. So as we now know today, medically speaking, it was probably the fact that aspirin did it, but also he was a very calming presence. Um, people said that, that when he got into his trance of, of praying, he really kind of calmed people down. And other historians believe that perhaps he also helped Alexei um, and his mother, Alexandra, due to the fact that he basically hypnotized them. He made yeah, them yeah. like literally relax and through hypnosis. Um, which is, you know, we all know that stress is like the biggest enemy of any sickness or anything health-wise. Um, I could, like we said in a few podcasts before, I mean, look at presidents when they start the first day of presidency and when they leave. What stress does to them, right? But yeah. they believe it's that highly idea. likely that was also the issue here. He basically put them at ease. And there's the one thing that's kind of freaky here. Um, I'm sure you remember this one. When he was back in Siberia um, and... Alexei develops a hemorrhage, right, in his thigh and groin because he's like going on this like horse ride or something. First of all, why would, I don't again, I don't get it. Your kids because they they're really. making him. They, they want him to be the king, so he's got to do yeah. the kingly things, the prince He has to be riding a horse. He has to be seen in public. They really didn't want to portray that the kid was sick as he was all the time. This kid basically develops severe pain, right, fever. Um, he appears close to death. This is 1912. So Alexandria asked. Um, to send a telegram to Rasputin, who's again in Siberia, so no phones, none of that good stuff. So they sent his telegram, and, and she basically said, please pray for Alexei. And Rasputin writes back very quickly, and he says, God has seen your tears and heard your prayers. Do not grieve. The little one will not die. And this is the key part. Do not allow the doctors to bother him much. And they said the next morning, Alexei's condition was unchanged, but the fact that Alexandra was super encouraged by this message you know, the bleeding basically stopped within two days and a fever went away. And people at the time, specifically close to Alexandra and as well as the Tsar, they believed that it was Rasputin that did this from far away through simple prayer. Yeah, but again, so now, yeah, it's magic. But now people believe, but highly likely what this was is just a calming presence. Uh, the mom was so stressed out and, and crying and putting so much stress, you know, with the father also on the kid that they said that highly likely that it was just a calming presence of even just the common message. Yeah. Well, the, the thought that up. things are going to be okay, that you're yeah. going to be okay. That just calmed them down enough and allowed, yeah, the body to just kind of heal itself or, you know, right itself at, at some yeah. level. He was not going to get full recovery, obviously, but it stopped and, the bleeding because he wasn't getting all worked up. You know, the heart rate goes down everything yeah. like that. So Exactly. Yeah. 
And then, it, then like, this is when the controversy starts. Because after that, he is basically, the royal family kind of believes in this Rasputin thing. Like, this is a real thing. Yeah. And, even Nicholas, even the Tsar Nicholas really believed in Rasputin after this point. Yeah. And a lot of people were coming to him and saying, listen, you can't trust Rasputin because what happens is Rasputin gets taken in by the royals a bit more. He comes into court and he's really reaching some of his height of his power at this point. But he's then he's he's getting into all his like bad habits again. He's preaching the physical uh, contact with um, yep. by the puri, the purifying and healing effect. Right? He had a lot of mistresses, and these mistresses were wives of the aristocrats in in the higher up Russian you know, Russian hierarchy. So he was not making uh, and he, even ones that he didn't be he didn't become yep. physical with. He still hit on them all the time, and right yep. in front of their husbands. Uh, and these yeah. these are high ranking officials, and they complain to Tsar Nicholas. And Nicholas, um, they basically learn pretty fast they can't do that because Nicholas kicks you out, and basically sends you in exile. Yeah. If if you if you say anything negative about Rasputin, because he believes that Rasputin is nothing was nothing more than a holy man, and that he was, if nothing else, like you said before, Pete was calming his wife down, and that was keeping that was helping Nicholas, that was helping um, his son. Yeah. So he was going to keep Rasputin around. Yep. At the time, Russia actually was very liberal with its press. Um, the Tsar allowed the free press, but because of that, we actually have so much um, about him. About him, because he was hated by the people. People viewed him as, you know, essentially yeah. this guy that everything that's bad that's happening in Russia and Russia's going through a transition now from an agricultural society to an industrial society. And and at the time, people believed that the Tsar was so out of touch with the peasants and the working class of the of the Russian people. And when they see this Rasputin everywhere, um, in the camera, you know, there's pictures of this guy. They, they hear news of him all the time. They kind of see as like, why is Rasputin, this this peasant, not helping us? You know, like he, he has to have the ear of the Tsar. Something's not right. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words, a podcast that presents the unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. As a country, we need these stories more than ever. Stories from Americans who have borne the battle, including 30-year-old remastered interviews with veterans from World War I recounting their time in the trenches of Europe, and with veterans from World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and from our most recent conflicts in Iraq, Afghanistan, and other battlefields Americans may never have heard of. Hear their stories by listening to Warriors in Their Own Words wherever you find podcasts. And we well, should also yeah. mention that when World War One starts, you know, and the Tsar gets really involved in the in the the war part, the Tsar's wife is seen often with Rasputin. And then people start to vilify that. They start to, they start to say, yeah, well, that's gonna spread rumors. Because yeah. remember in nineteen eleven he was um he was kicked out of Russia. He was expelled by by Nicholas because yeah. of all his misdeeds, like kind of a general scandal. Um so he actually ex expelled them because the prime minister sent him a report and Nicholas like, I have, I have to kick you out of Russia. That's it. I have to expel yeah. you. Um, but uh, Alexandra wanted him back so much. Within like four or five months, he was back. Crazy. And Nicholas is like, fine. He just kind of ignores everything else because he knows the calming effect, like we said before. And then, yeah, during um, – he reaches – he's like his – the height of his power at the Russian court after 1915. And during World War One, when Nicholas takes personal command of the uh, – Russian forces in, yeah. on the front, leaving Alexandra in charge. Of, Rasputin serves as her personal advisor. And you yeah. basically see him everywhere. Yeah. 
And then obviously there's rumors of the fact that historians still can't really figure out if it's true or not that he obviously had an affair with uh, De Zerina, but also with um, I don't know if he would though. That, that's really, I mean, you really, I, I, I mean, you're really if he if that if that if he gets caught doing that. Oh, then, then, then he's done. Then he's done. Yeah. So I don't know. He kind of liked the life. Was, was he really willing to risk it? Who knows? I mean, I don't know. Yeah. But that's uh, something that I don't know. Would, would it be worth the risk at that point? He's, yeah. he's, he's risking everything he knows, his lifestyle that he loves, all his power, everything. So, yeah. And again, same thing was applied to the teenage daughters, right? Yes. Uh, Olga and Tatiana, they believed yeah. that potentially he was sleeping with them as well. Now, there is actually the, the American, the Amer- I said American people, geez, great. Um, the Russian people are definitely against this guy. Like, they, they, first of all, they're against the, the czar, period. You know, like, yeah, the yeah Russians they, are and, he, and he's, yeah, it, it's, there's other stuff going on. Another yeah. podcast, different podcast. Yeah. Um, so, in 1914, actually, uh, there's an assassination attempt on his life. A 33 year old peasant woman. Um, attempts to assassinate Rasputin and she stabbed him in his stomach, right? Stomach, Outside of yeah. his home. But they said it wasn't like a little like jab. No, they said like the guts came that. out. Like this was yeah. like a mortal wound. Like he should not have lived. Oh, but he made a full recovery. Full recovery. And people, again, at the time, people are like, you know, it's the mystic thing. This guy's like a charlatan. Something's not right. Yeah. How they believe he, he was actually, yeah, they believe he was. That started the myth, which becomes even bigger later on, that he that he's Unkillable. impossible to kill. Yeah. That, yeah, he cannot be killed. Yep. Meanwhile, this guy, if you really look at history of it, he barely lived. I mean, they literally had to do surgeries on him to like bring his insights back into him. Like, did he, this was not what the media made it seem like no. um, until years later, historians realized like how serious it was. Like, he didn't just heal himself. Like, this guy barely survived surgery. Right. But this is also, you're starting to realize that some people start to believe that the woman was really sent by you know some people that are known and have a certain status in russia like maybe some people want him out and that kind of brings us i think to his death which is freaky and interesting in itself but i think that it's also important to note when we talk about his death the fact that he was stabbed in the stomach because that does play a big role um in trying to either believe or not believe the way in which he was killed Again, he's he's not well liked, right? And there's yeah. other assassination attempts on his life, but none were successful until 1916, which basically a group of extremist conservatives, right, including um, a prince. Yeah, prince, nephew uh, of the Felix. Czar. Yeah, he was he was the husband of the Czar's niece. Yeah, um, and members of the Duma, other Grand Dukes, they all kind of come together. Czar's cousin, they form a conspiracy to basically get rid of him and save the monarchy from further scandal. That's what they mm-hmm. want to do. So the night on uh, December, in December 29th, 1930th, um, he was invited to the home and they gave him this massive feast. He had, you know, appetizers, food, dessert, everything. And they brought him in the and basement, they, though. They said yes, particularly yeah. like, oh, we got to go in the basement because my wife is, is having a little get together upstairs. And they had music playing loudly in the one closed room. Make it seem like that. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah, why they brought him to like a, you know, soundproofed basement. That was the plan. Mm-hmm. And then idea, the legend is or what comes out in... It's, it's debated now is that basically all the food was laced with poison. Well, that's what the guy said. The guy, that, the guy yeah. whose house it was, this was his account yeah. afterwards. He said all the food was laced with poison and that Vespune ate it all and nothing happened. Yeah. They said when they didn't die, they got upset. So they started shooting him. Yeah. They shot him. I think they were saying like 30 something times in the chest, apparently. Right. 
Well, eventually, um, the, the way that her, her, her geez, the way that his autopsy went, he got shot twice in the chest. Yeah, in, yeah, in the chest. And they think there might have been one shot in the head. That's what yeah, I so that didn't too. happen. So this is where it gets interesting. Yeah. Because they they give him all this food, and he supposedly refuses. He doesn't want it. And they're like, no, 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 eat the cake, eat the cake. And he's like, all right, fine. So he eats the cake, uh, which is laced with cyanide, I think. Then they give him um, wine, which also is laced with cyanide. And then nothing happens. Like you said, these guys are like, what the hell? Like, why is this happening? So they finally get PO'd. They take out a gun. Boom. They shoot him twice. They right? shoot him. Yeah, they shoot him and twice. Supposedly, yeah. Also. And, and the legend is that what? Did you hear that one? that he's still breathing. Yeah, well, there. They leave. And supposedly what the legend is that he kept, he was still breathing when they came back. Yes. Like, because oh, my God. What's it, the way they left, the reason they left, they actually took his coat and his hat. And they left to be seen somewhere to make it seem like he was around that time. And then they came back to dispose of the body. And as they're about to grab his body, he basically jumps up like, you know, he's like alive. They're like, holy crap. And then they beat him. And then supposedly that's when they shoot him the last time where there's two and more they, shots. Yeah, and they tie him up and throw him in a, in a frozen river. Yes. So one of those shots is a headshot, which is supposedly a kill shot. And then they wrap him up in this like. Yeah, they bound right, him like. Yeah, and then they throw him. Well, oh, the thing is that they bound him really, really tightly. Yeah, they were cute. afraid he was going to break out. Yeah. Yes, because well, even yeah, even though he was dead, I mean, he got a headshot, and then they actually tie like a rope around this. I think it was a carpet, and then they throw him in a river. Well, his body is found. This is where it gets interesting. An investigation is launched, and that's when police officers come on the scene. And they find his body under like a frozen block of ice, right? That's yeah, and the assumption is that he was that the I mean the, the legend is that when they pulled him out of the river, he was days later he was still alive. Yeah, or at least that's, not, that's what like yeah. they kind of talk about. They kind of state he, he wasn't; he was dead. Of course, but the the legend is that no, he was still alive even then. Well, the issue was that he was out of this wrapping, which is what, what was weird. His one arm was out, like half of his body was out. And if they bound him so tightly inside this carpet, how did he get out? How did he get out? So apparently, supposedly, he got shot in the head. He got shot over his body. He got poisoned. He got beaten, and he still lived. And you know, the official autopsy report that came out in the newspaper said that he died from hyperthermia. I mean, that means he died from, like. You know, being thrown in a river after getting shot, like in the head, nuts. In the head and poison. Oh, yeah, nuts. Like the fact that they would think that he died from hypothermia. But, however, um, later on, there was another report that came out. And this is something that is, again, this is the whole disputed part. That basically said that there was no water in Rasputin's lungs. And if there was no water. No water, no poison. And yeah, that he was he was shot. It was the uh, he was dead when he was in the, when they threw him in the water. Yep. And uh, it was a shot to the head, like you said before. That basically is what killed yeah. him. And also, what's kind of interesting here: a lot of the newspapers at the time, um, and again, this is kind of to discredit Rasputin. It was the fact that they cut off his penis, and this, you know, organ of his apparently was put in a jar and like sold from person to person, and eventually was given to some collector and displayed in a museum years later um and apparently it was a it was a very large organ um body part um okay fair enough fair enough however it was not his penis because um we later find out that that's also one of those myths uh due to the fact that he was that did not happen his it was still in his body when it was found what is kind of interesting in all this though 
is the fact that after the autopsy, they realized that the bullet from the head was not fired from the same gun that fired the other bullets. And that was definitely the kill shot, right? Bum, bum, bum. Now, what makes it even more interesting is that that bullet was fired by a gun that normally would not be seen in Russia at that time that frequently by any means because it was potentially a British gun or a gun that's used by British agents. And again, that's that's one of those things that just adds to the mythology, to the conspiracy theories about Rasputin. Yeah, so... Some writers to this day kind of suggest that British intelligence service um, basically were involved in Rasputin's assassination. Um, so according to this theory, British agents were concerned that Rasputin was urging the Tsar to make a separate peace with Germany, uh, which would allow Germany to concentrate its military efforts on the Western Front, which is insane because that's literally what happens. That's what, happen- that's what happens anyway. Because, because yeah, this is, only a, this is only a few weeks before the Bolsheviks take power, right? This yeah. is only a couple of weeks yeah. before peace. Alexandra is like, well, you know, she's upset that Rasputin gets killed, but she only resolves her to like protect the, you know, the the monarchy even more. And basically, it doesn't matter anyway because within a few weeks, that's all swept gone. It just, just collapses. She's dead in a couple 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 months, really. Her entire family. Yeah. There's another thing that was that is kind of disputed here is the fact that, and I, I go back to the whole wound in the you know being cut up and stuff. He did not supposedly eat much rich heavy food after that surgery and he avoided um drinking as much but also he avoided any sweets which is why people are now saying well if that's the case he would not have eaten a cake that was you know laced with any form of um poison because he did not eat cake right um but then other people believe that his teeth were so black um, because of the fact that he was, he had such a sweet tooth, no pun intended. But then another case goes around and says, well, there really isn't any pictures of him with his mouth open. So how do we know if his teeth were really black? And then you're like, oh, so there is a lot of There's so much just disputed. He's a very, like he's been dead for over a hundred years. So just there, you have a lot of that dispute over time. Things change. Some people say that he was a raging alcoholic. Others say, no, he drank, but he was in control. Some say he was a holy man. Others say he used to, um, what, call prostitutes late at night, just like someone would order a pizza late at night. Like yeah. those sorts of things that he was, it's, and you get both sides of the coin that he was this like evil man, right? Wanted to take over Russia. Another one talks about how he tried to convince the, the, um, uh, Alexandria to, give food to the poor peasants the, yeah. like that basically so she, they would um she could understand the people's pain it, it never happened but they're saying they found these notes they all scribbled on that he's saying you should go do this and things like that nature so it's a two-sided coin basically when you're talking about a lot of this stuff with rasputin yeah history has really changed the narrative a lot with when it comes to him and again there's podcasts upon podcasts on rasputin out there there's documentaries about him i mean there's people that do like two, three-part podcasts on him. Again, that's not really the goal of our podcast. Um, hopefully, it gets you interested enough to go out there and, and kind of search some of this stuff. But some fun facts I guess we could finish up with. First of all, Rasputin was not the first mystic that um, the Tsar and the Tsarina actually hired. Uh, there was like a French healer before him. 
um, that would do like seances and, and claim that he could predict the future and all that stuff. And he was eventually kind of exposed as a charlatan and expelled from Russia. But the royal couple actually did um, believe that he's the reason that they even had a son, that it was because of this, this healer, um, French guy, mystic, that uh, he made sure that she gave birth to a son. So he wasn't the only one. And then some of the other interesting facts from it here, regardless of, you know, what the myths well, I saw one. I saw this one thing that he used to always do. Apparently he was known for, um, and this one isn't really disputed, is that he, before dinner parties, a lot of times he would go and he would lick each and every spoon. Mm-hmm. You see that? Mm-hmm. So he would go and lick uh, all the spoons about to be used to uh, serve other people. And he, again, we said before, he used to always have um, food in his beard. Basically, he was known for having terrible, terrible personal hygiene in general. And that was like a well-known fact that like Rasputin, he just smelled bad. He was just dirty and his table manners were just uncivilized, even by today's standards, but definitely by the aristocrats and the higher-ups of the Russian Russian society. Did you hear about the letter? The, which the, the one in which he foretold. Letters. So the letter in which Rasputin foretold his death, which was written like a really misspelled words, because as you mentioned earlier, he kind of was not necessarily that literate. He was illiterate, yeah. No, I didn't yeah. hear about that letter. I know I heard other letters when he's writing to the queen and stuff, but I didn't know. Yeah, so there's a letter that was written in which he foretold his own death. And the authenticity of Rasputin, the letter itself, right now, as of now, again, this is an ongoing thing, uh, it is believed that he did write this letter. But interestingly enough, it was written to the Tsar, to Tsar Nicholas in December of 1816. Um, so the year, you know, the year he dies... And he dies. I mean, he dies mere weeks later. But in a letter, he says, I feel that I shall leave life before January 1st. And he dies on like December 30th. Um, If it was your relations who have wrought my death, then none of your children will remain alive for more than two years. And then he gets killed on the morning of December 30th, right? By a group that includes the Tsar's cousin and nephew, uh, or at least nephew-in-law. And sure enough, two years later, July 1918, Nicholas, Alexandra, and all four of their children are executed. But then the letter doesn't really appear until 1920s. Um, but enough is... Yeah, so, yeah, and his secretary was the one that vouched for it being real. Yeah. Like a secretary, but they don't, they're not really sure other predictions, including he said the world was going to end in um, August of 2013. That obviously didn't happen. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he did other predictions. And this one, you know, on the surface, looks like it it it, worked, it was true. Yeah. Do you have anything else that's kind of crazy about Rasputin? I mean, does it, I mean, there's a ton of there's a ton of things in that he wasn't actually a monk. That was always he's often called a mad monk, right? But he wasn't actually yeah. a monk. Uh, there was belief that he actually rose from the dead. That he that he came back. Um, obviously, that that didn't happen. But you know, it's he just has a lot of tying in with that with those mystic arts. They also said that was kind of his undoing because the the way they um, kind of baited him to come over to his eventual place of death as they kind of told him that he was going to be a guest of honor at this banquet. And there was going to be a lot of women there. Um, and, you know, supposedly he just could not resist a good party. So, you know, that was the reason he, uh, he attended. I think that's pretty much all I yeah, got. That's Rasputin in a nutshell. Obviously there's a lot more to it. You can use books written about him. Like you said, Pete documentaries, probably thousands of podcasts that focus on Rasputin. Yeah. And they're all going to go different, you know, 
some dev more into the uh, spiritual realm. Some might look more on the murder. Again, we're just giving you kind of a brief overview. We're giving you what a uh, brief little history lesson here on Rasputin's life, his influence in the royal court, why he was there, things of that nature, and just allow you to form your own opinions. And then if you want to go off, like you said before, Peter, and see all the other content available about this guy that's out there, go for it. Yep. Spark Again, interest a little bit. That's what we do. We're just some history teachers talking. That's all we got. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. All right, guys. So uh, again, we're trying to uh, kind of diversify from just doing American history. But at the same time, again, this came to us. Well, you suggested this a while back. Um, we talked about it yeah, once or twice. And then I think we wind up doing serial killers. Instead, <laughs> that was when we did a, yeah. the one on serial killers, which we can always do more on those because unfortunately there's a lot of them. Yeah. And also, uh, this time around, like we said earlier, this was suggested to us by uh, by one of our listeners. So we're like, hey, you know what? We talked about it. It was suggested. Let's do it. So here it is. Um, Again, I just want to thank you guys for tuning in every week and listening to us. We really do appreciate it. Uh, Make sure that wherever you do listen to this podcast, you click subscribe. It really helps us out. And I think that's all I got. Got anything else? Oh, and keep them coming, right? Keep keep somebody's suggestions. Keep coming. Yeah, we we like the suggestions. We like the reviews. Um, just let us know and any feedback you have is very helpful. Absolutely. So thank you very much, guys. Stay safe, everybody. I hope everyone enjoyed our podcast, and if you would like to email us, you can do so at historyteacherspodcast at gmail.com. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Burn the Boats from Evergreen Podcasts. I interview political leaders and influencers, folks like award-winning journalist Soledad O'Brien and conservative columnist Bill Kristol about the choices they confront when failure is not an option. I won't agree with everyone I talk to but I respect anyone who believes in something enough to risk everything for it because history belongs to those willing to burn the boats. Episodes are out every other week, wherever you get your podcasts.